1: Hey, I'm Nick DiMatteo, and welcome to Season 5, Episode 29 of Music Is Not A Genre. Also, book talk number five. Thank you, as always, for watching and listening. Please take a moment to support this podcast at patreon.com slash music is not a genre. There's a lot you get there, including discounts on t-shirts forever and early releases of everything, exclusive content, and the joy of supporting an artist. Uh, And of course... Go to youtube.com slash at music is not a genre. If you were just a listener, that's where you can see all these wonderful videos that I create and uh, what kind of hair I happen to have today. And of course, please subscribe and like and share and all of that. My website is nickdomadio.com. If you go to nickdomadio.com contact, sign up for the free newsletter, you get all kinds of news and uh, other special things and you get to talk directly to me. And of course, please listen to and support my band, Wreck, at wreckarea.bandcamp.com or wherever you stream music. A couple of things before we get started: you'll hear my voice is a little, you know, it. I got I'm going through something. I don't know what it is. Uh, I actually just did a voiceover job this morning for a department store, and somehow. I think they wanted kind of that warm, raspy voice, so it all worked out, but yeah, I've got a little bit of a cold or something like that going on, but still very excited to be here, and the second thing is, I know a few episodes ago I mentioned that there would be an announcement of something that's happening with this podcast. That's still in the works. It's taking a little longer than expected, but I will just give you a hint, and that is it's a kind of a step up as far as where this podcast is being distributed and who's listening to it, so... Uh, An early thanks to anybody out there who's involved with that, who, you know, is uh, helping to take care of that. And, of course, a huge thanks again to all of you for sticking around. This week's topic, as mentioned, this is the fifth official book talk and the first one for this season, season five. And the title is Bono's Surrender 500 Pages of Top Line Melody. So the book itself, which if you are not uh, watching, I am pointing to it right now, or I'm giving you the Wheel of Fortune hand gesture here uh, for the book, is actually called Surrender, 40 Songs, One Story. Uh, And it's a combination of memoir, somewhat of an autobiography. It has uh, elements of, uh, you know, history and personal things and music, uh, some some breakdown of the music, etc. And I'll talk a little bit more about the structure of the book as we get into it. But let me mention first, why did I subtitle this top line melody? Because uh, Bono mentions it a few times in the book, uh, how one of his strengths is he can always find the top line melody of a song. So think about it like this. I, I wrote a song a few years ago called If It Feels All Right. And when I first wrote it, uh, again, I have a cold, so my singing will be a little off. I'll do it in a different key. When I first wrote it, the chorus was something like, If it feels all right, you all right. And I realized that there was a better melody, uh, kind of a more of a top line melody, the melody that pops out among many other melodies that you instinctively know is the strongest one, is the one that carries the song. So I I went to, if it feels all right, to, if it feels all right. And that opened up the song in a way that I hadn't even thought of before. And that's just something that as a singer and as a writer, you're always looking for. And he also says, Bono, that not only is he has he always been, been good at that, to, to him, even before he could even sing well, he knew how to find a top line. He also tries to look for that top-line melody, quote-unquote, in his activism, in his politics. And because he's a bit of a meanderer when it comes to communication, the more of a poet and is able to kind of distill things in a different way in the way he communicates, he knows that he needs help from, you know, the politicians and, and activists and people who are better at distilling ideas and getting them across in a certain way to people. And I... I use this as the subtitle because I felt like this whole book is a top line melody. You know, I would love one day to collaborate with somebody on an autobiography. I, I guess I'm too lazy to write it myself. I don't know. But the idea of distilling your life, however long it is into just a few hundred pages seems more daunting than the writing itself could write forever about everything and it would be thousands of pages and what do you do with that so you know i'm sure through uh contemplation and writing and rewriting and editing and 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 help from others you know bono found a way to do what all good books do and good books like this in particular and that is distill his experiences into a narrative that is broken up by of course 40 anecdotes but it's an it's still a narrative and loosely chronological mostly chronological i would say into something uh resembling a top line melody for the for the entire book uh but i will say that the book itself it's more like his personality which if you've ever seen him in interviews he he interviews to me in the same way that prince used to interview which is there seems to be somewhat of a shyness and a and a and a maybe a reticence and uh, the the overt uh, confidence, let's say, which some people might say borders on arrogance, is actually masking, you know, uh, hesitation, insecurity, and things like that. And he'd be one of the first people, you know, to say that. But I think when he gets started, he's very wide-ranging. He's discursive. He really just goes all over the place. But somehow, again, you know. The, the book, to me, does hold together and has an arc. So it's not just, oh, here's an anecdote, and then this anecdote is somehow completely unrelated. It It is connected. And and it reminds me of U2's music in general. And let me just say from the front here, close to the front, this is not going to be a, um, a podcast about U2 the band. Uh, I've actually decided that since all this is fresh in my mind, I'm going to be doing that next week. So if you're a YouTube fan, probably why you're watching this or listening in the first place, but also I'm going to follow this up back to back with finally, after all these years, uh, dedication of an entire podcast episode to you uh, as daunting to me as the Beatles have been, as Prince was and some others, and I'm excited for it. And I'm glad that I read this book first because it gives me some insight into being able to do that but that this you this book itself reminds me of U2's music which makes sense because you know one of the same creators is behind it in that it is big it it it's big it reaches far but it reaches far with little things and that's something that he points out and i think it's something that you could go back as far as boy you know the first album if you are really listening and if you are listening through the giantness, the the, the mad, you know, mag- majesty, let's say, of the music, you will find there are many small personal things that are what give it life.
2: Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds.
1: That where the, the impetus and the origin for the bigness comes from. And I think this book is a lot like that. There are a lot of micro moments, micro ideas and uh, instances and thoughts and whatever that paint a big picture in a big way. Just like the music, right? Uh, and also note on the shirt. Uh, I was just getting ready to wear a U2 concert t-shirt and realized this is not the YouTube podcast. This is the book podcast. So I went with the only Irish shirt I have, uh, Egypt, you know, just a kind of a funny way of saying idiot. And also because there's a lot of self-deprecating humor in the book. So I thought that this was an appropriate shirt, uh, for those of you who, cannot see because you're just listening it's e e j i t i'm sure there are other ways to spell it but just think of idiot in an irish accent uh now as far as this book right i haven't read a lot of music books this year and that's why i haven't done another book talk i'm hoping to do uh you know one more before the end of the season but we'll see you know uh, i i i don't know i did guest recently on the uh another person's podcast about a david bowie book closest i've come really As far as books in general, for me, I think this is true for a lot of people. There are books you want to read, you know, then there are books you have to read that you can't not read some author that you love or a person from another walk of life who you just, you know, always follow. You're like, well, I'm going to read that book no matter what, even if, you, you know, you're concerned that it might not be the best or whatever it is. And in this case, this was a book like that for me. Right. And sometimes you get through the you know, book, you start and they hook you and you're like, yeah, I knew I had to read this and there's a good reason why. And other times you get a little further down, you're like, well, I'm going to read it, but it's not what I hoped it would be. You know, that happens uh, a lot with movies for me where it's, you know, an adaptation of a book or some other, you know, story, some other media, you know, medium. And, you the movie or the less likely the TV show, because there's more time to un unweave, you know, to weave things and unweave them. Uh It just falls flat. It's not what you hoped it would be. But I would say this, you know, if you know that I'm a U2 fan, they're one of my uh, easily top three bands, favorite bands. And the only, I think the, uh, the one, not the only, but the one can. Cont- contemporary band and i say contemporary because they continue to release new music in new ways not just to retread that uh i that still resonates with me that i still follow the the cures coming out with an album soon i mean mccartney comes out with albums but but even over and above those you know there are songs from every single one of their albums that still resonate with me from as far back as 1982 as recent as 2017 and the new album related to this book which i'll talk about later uh songs of surrender that's right now i started this thinking well this wasn't going to this would probably disappoint me in some way you know it would it it would be you know what people would expect from bono if you aren't really paying attention which is you know bombast and self importance and trying to make everything hyper poetic or whatever it is and the the from the very first chapter which talks about some heart surgery uh and all the way through you get everything you get that bigness you get that uh, bombast but it's always tempered with self-awareness and self-deprecation and even going so far as to explain where it comes from and why and all of this and so it was it's one of the few books that i've read and i've been lucky lately some books i've been reading have have hit this way for me some fiction books where i was hooked from pretty much the beginning you know maybe the second chapter at the at the very latest it just clicked and i realized what he was doing and how and 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 in some ways why and i and i knew that this would become one of the more important books for me you know and why why well there's resonance, uh, and I'm talking as a reader and a fan, on several levels. Musical, of course. I am into U2's music, so I'm, I naturally have an affinity for what he's talking about. Uh, I happen to align with uh, you know, lib- those liberal politics, progressive politics, so that is something that resonates with me. Uh, knowing a lot of the history of the band, but wanting to know more. Uh, there's there's a lot of spiritual elements to the book that have to do with, in some ways, a rejection of religion, but an understanding of where religion comes from, in particular uh, Christian Catholic religion, and how it's been misinterpreted and misused and all of that, and how spirituality can bring you to a place that's more organic and that's closer to what the original intent of most you know, uh, religions are, there's a lot of philosophy in here. Uh, I took some philosophy in college. I've always been kind of a fan of it even before college. And certainly after just kind of the idea of, you know, using logic to take a thought to its extreme and to almost create proofs as to why, you know, Descartes was like, I think therefore I am, didn't just say it, but went through all this logic, reason, and persuasion, which happened to be the name of the class I took, and uh, set out to prove it. And there's some of that in here. It's mostly just expounding on certain things. And he happens to mention authors I've read who have been my favorites, uh, uh, Søren Kierkegaard, uh, William Blake, Carl Jung, uh, Rilke for the poetry. Uh, and so As that happened, it helped me realize that one of the reasons that I think that U2's music and Bono's lyrics and melodies have resonated so much with me is because a lot of what he has absorbed is similar to things that I have absorbed. So there was a connection that even predated the music. And even though we both create music and it comes out in different ways. And yes, you will hear u two influences in, in some of the things I do. And I will share a song at the end of this podcast, and next week's podcast, both of which uh, have u two influences as do several, though not all of what I do, but at, but at the, you know, then that's partly because even the songs that don't sound like you two, that I do come from, In some ways, a similar place, using small ideas to create big things, using, uh, you know, some poetry, but mostly conversation to create, uh, you know, majesty. I I don't know how else to say it. Uh, I find the book also to be, again, very self deprecating. And I think that that may be one of the bigger takeaways about this, which is that it's possible to be both self-important and self-deprecating and uh you know kind of have blind spots but still be self-aware and the fact that he was generous enough to write this book and to go into some of the very personal issues uh him and his bandmates and his family and as to why he is the way he is and all of that i think helps to connect it to thing to other things that people uh experience in their own personalities and egos and, you know, sheds light on how he's been the way he has been and how he's changed even, you know, and a lot of humor, a lot of humor, a lot of dry humor, especially kind of that tongue in cheek, Irish humor, uh, half fun, full earnest is, a, is an old phrase I remember from some novelist books I read. And I think the book is somewhat deceptive because there's so much philosophical rumination and politics and religion and social issues not every chapter some of them have to do with family or the band itself uh you know how uh, they got a record deal blah 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 like things that you'd want to know just from the music and the, the being a fan of the band standpoint or even as a musician uh why they made certain decisions about certain songs uh you know how I, th- uh, I think it was, was it with or without you went from being this kind of saccharine pop song to the, what it is and what we know it as and how it sustained itself because they found a way to pull out some of that uh, over the topness, you know, that was in there originally. But if you read with attention and I just uh, kind of described it, you can get past, not get past, but you absorb all of the philosophy, politics, religion, social issues, but you get to the music you do. Uh, I, I would love to have read another book that actually took those 40 songs and broke them down even more. And there was some breakdown, not for every single one of the 40, and there's more than 40 songs mentioned too, but this is not a book about per se about music. It's about how music kind of weaves in with life, which one of the whole tenets of music is not a genre is that music itself should not be separated from the rest of life. And that, this book says that all over, just as, as you know, almost, almost as well as you can. And there's a lot, uh, there's quite a bit about the process. There's a lot about uh, the people who went into the creation, not just the four bandmates, but producers and, uh, you know, friends and family who contributed in some way or influences, uh, inspirations, personal facts that maybe prompted Bono or someone else, uh, The Edge, to write lyrics to a song or to have an idea for a song where that came from. And very often explain. well, you know, bad is about a drug addict. Didn't know that one of my, still one of my top five favorite U2 songs was unaware that that's where that came from. And I think that that's, uh, it's significant because it doesn't take away from the fact that you can turn that song into whatever you want it to be, but it does help shed that kind of light you know, and he just slides these things in and weaves them into the fabric of all the big world stuff without breaking stride, you know, Uh, again, like U2's music to me, I think they find a way to be both personal and uh, universal, you know, which I think all good music does, or most good music, and yes, you have to pay attention to it to get it all, I think, it's always interesting to me that people have such a visceral, visceral reaction to Bono and to U two that you you know kind of either love them or hate them. Some people are kind of you know lukewarm about them, but mostly the, you either underst you either get them and they resonate with you and they fill you with life, or they completely turn you off. And I think that like with a lot of music, and I'm sure I have my blind spots too. If you're not really listening, if you're taking it at face value and listening to what Memes say, or what people who don't like the man say a lot of you know the internet is driven by that, but honestly, I'm reading you know, freaking Charles Dickens, and a lot of the history of the world is driven by people taking larger ideas that are more complex and distilling them in a way that might be effective but might be misleading. And I think a lot of the press that uh, Bono and you two have gotten, while even Bono would say, uh, Paul Houston is justified uh, is the, it's been overblown. And I, and I think that, uh, if you're a person who just has no ability to get past that, then you're not going to want to read this book, but you probably also don't listen to U2's music. If you're somebody who's open to at least trying something that you either haven't before or haven't wanted to, I would suggest maybe even starting with this book before you start with the music, because It gives you a sense of where the music comes from, which I think might help you appreciate it more. You know, uh, I think one of the things that Bono points out a lot in this book is that he is a huge fan of uncertainty. He's a huge fan of what I like to call chiaroscuro, you know, the dark with the light. And unlike some other, let's say bands, I'll even say Christian bands or bands who have some type of spirituality in their music, Uh, he, he never proclaims to have the answers. I mean, one of the most famous of their songs. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And I think it's somewhere in the book that says that kind of is like the template for a lot of what, uh, he and they write, which is not knowing is wanting to know is the search, you know, like, uh, the X-Files, I want to believe or trust, but verify and all that stuff. Uh, you know, the uncertainty is in there people might miss the humility of a lot of what's in there and the honesty that allows for self judgment. And I think this is something that we all need to be comfortable with because the more comfortable we are with self judgment, the less we judge others harshly, you know? And like I said, this is not an out and out biography. If it were autobiography, if it were, you know, there might not be so much leaning in different directions that have less to do with his life and more to do with experiences. And it's like, what it's a memoir, you know? Uh, one of the things that I will probably say more and, and talk more about next week is that I've always felt that you two, uh, or no, I, I haven't. Let me put it differently, because I kind of learned this more from the book. And that is that you two seem to always have a mission that went beyond the music, that the, the them together, they found a way to create, well, this is what I want from this music but this is also what i want from the world and and what we think the world wants from us and from life and and what i and to me i think that's the mark of a successful career no matter when you enter that level of success is kind of knowing that it goes beyond the music that it's not just about being great at that. It's having a, uh, you know, a package of persona and not in and not necessarily in an artificial way. I mean, I think you should have the willingness to play with it like you two has done through their career as far as, you know, when he got into the fly and Mephisto and, you know, things that he will admit came from or were inspired by David Bowie, just taking on different persona and and allowing that bubble to be burst of the self-importance and all of that. But another thing that he illustrates in this book is that the mission was never perfect and was never perfectly executed. There were times where things went too far in one direction. And one of the things he likes doing is challenging himself and the band to course correct. And allowing for that kind of change, for that kind of course correction, I think prevents you from becoming an echo of yourself or a parody of yourself, like so many older bands can do. Divergence even. sometimes. Too far. Sometimes pushing for changes that didn't necessarily work as well as uh, they hoped they would. Uh, a lot of people have issues with the album Pop from I believe '97, and I can understand why. You know, it was v- it was very in some ways on YouTube, and in other ways it was YouTube, and it was just a different facet. You know, uh, another thing this book has a lot of is uh, celebrity anecdotes, and I was talking uh, to my dad about this. Uh, recommend that he read it. Even though he doesn't know a lot about you two or the music. And he's like, oh, name dropper, huh? And yeah, absolutely. You know? And there's a point at which you you kind of bristle and you're like, okay, okay, you know, what do you? But every name that's dropped, there's a purpose to it. There's a story that's being told that might uh teach a lesson or a lesson that was taught to him, or just a way that, you know, break down that barrier between yourself and the world, or whatever it is, or politics. Uh, Frank Sinatra, Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, Tim Cook, Paul McCartney, Ashley Judd, Johnny Cash, Killian Murphy, Harry Belafonte, Nelson Mandela, the Pope, the Dalai Lama, several U.S. presidents and politicians, several world leaders and politicians. And yeah, I mean, memoirs, especially of famous people who've traveled in those circles, you're going to get a lot of that. But rest assured, each one, greater purpose, you know, to what's being said. Now, we've gotten to the middle third I don't know. I don't break these down in that way, but this podcast will now shift into the way that I'd like to talk about this book other than the overview I've given, which is I've excerpted some quotes and I'm going to read them and see what uh, sparks in me and hopefully something sparks in you. So they're in uh, order. Uh, earlier in the book to later in the book i don't have page numbers or anything but that's partly because i want you to discover them when they come up i i uh have them here so i'm giving them to you but it would be great if you read it and just discovered them as you went along and here's one the dalai lama says you can only begin a real meditation on life with a meditation on death gothic stuff but something in it finiteness and infiniteness are two poles of the human experience are the two poles of the human experience everything we do think feel imagine discuss is framed by the notion of whether our death is the end or the beginning of something else it takes great faith to have no faith great strength of character to resist the ancient texts that suggests an afterlife and uh, he he ends it with at age 14 none of this was abstract you know he lost his mother young and I think that's when he lost his mother, so death was uh, ever present in his life. Really, the thing that 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 jumped out with me in all of this is yeah, is yeah, you know. I think the older you get, and the more if you're you're really trying to be self-aware and examine yourself in your life, you realize that the more you push away the idea of death, the more you push away the fullness of life. You know, so and I, and that's not something that's a that's just a universal truth that's been around for a really long time, and I think. Him saying, like, resisting the ancient text. It's been in the ancient text. It's something that's been contemplated. I. But the thing that jumped out at me was it takes great faith to have no faith. And I've always felt this about atheists, you know, and I'm not necessarily a believer. I'm I'm an agnostic, and I'm trying to work on deciding whether I want to. I believe my, yeah, I think it's the X-Files thing. Like, I want to believe, you know. I want to be uh, in a place where I believe that there's something, you know, more than this life, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, But when you, you know, and I understand, I think one of the most uh, understandable positions to be in in life is being an agnostic because no one knows. And that's all it means is I don't know. And I mean, belief goes beyond knowing, sure. But the quote part was, it takes great faith to have no faith. Atheists are faithful in being absolutely certain that there's nothing beyond this life. And I can't understand how they can know that any more than believers can know that there is something beyond this life, which is what makes me an agnostic. But it's interesting that he put it that way because... And I think he even, uh, you know, illustrates that faith is not about blind belief. It's about, about doubt. The way life is about death, faith is about doubt. Like, true faith, right? And, and that it's pushing me into a direction of, well, the more I examine that, maybe the more I'll get closer to where I would like to be. Next quote. Edge has always had the best take on people who don't like you, too. Quote, they're not just trying hard enough. Unquote. He deadpants. I'm sorry. They're just not trying hard enough. Boy, you see what a cold does to your head, makes you fuzzy. Uh, And I love that. I love that because it's a deadpan kind of a funny thing. But I also love that because as a musician and as any type of creator, what I think it's important to remember and what you will find from a lot of things that you have to pay for, like I said last week, and you shouldn't have to, is that you will, if you keep searching, you will find your audience. And the more you know what you do and who you are, the more you will find your audience. If someone doesn't like what you do or it doesn't resonate with them, it's not because it's bad or because you shouldn't be doing it. It's because that's not your audience. And I think that's a part of it. But I think this, they're just not trying hard enough. The other part of that that really I love is that there is music that you know, just like I said with, uh, oh, I forget which podcast this was. It doesn't just bear repeated listening. It demands it. That was the guest spot I did for David Bowie, uh, Berlin Trilogy. There are the, the best music bears repeated listening in that you can listen to it over and over. And and even though you might feel like it's played out, you never think it's bad. And And in the best case, it never feels played out to you. But there's some music that demands repeated listening, the music that you might not get right away or you might not get all of right away. And I think one of the things that you 2 and and REC have in common is that there is a a surface accessibility that belies the depth beneath it. And the things that you 2 were doing that we take for granted now that they still do have a depth that goes well beyond that surface accessibility. And the ability... To be both accessible and to communicate well towards others and still have stuff behind it that you might not catch until second, third, fourth, tenth listen is really genius to me. It, you know, and it's something that I, uh, I uh, work to achieve in, in everything that I do with Wreck as well. Uh, next thing playlist their first uk tour in the early 80s i believe uh the playlist in their van and the van was a very important part of their life they thought oh we will have made it when we can afford a touring van and i love that because i love vans these are the bands and the albums they were listening to the associates uh album the affectionate punch the clash london calling peter gabriel peter gabriel the pretenders pretenders The Teardrop Explodes, Kilimanjaro. Joy Division, Unknown Pleasures. Skids, Days in Europe. Pauline Murray and the Invisible Girls, Untitled. David Bowie, Scary Monsters and Super Creeps. It would have been right around when it came out. Echo and the Bunnymen, Crocodiles. Giorgio Moroder, the soundtrack to Midnight Express. Blondie, Parallel Lines. What's interesting about this is two things. One, people forget that you 2 are post-punk or were post-punk. They were heavily influenced by punk music. And a lot of what this is, is punk and post-punk from that period, or from slightly before. The second thing is, there are a lot of these bands that I've never heard of. And yeah, there's a ton of bands I've never heard of, but generally, if it's Pop culture, I probably have some passing knowledge of it, but The Associates, The Teardrop Explodes, Skids, Polly Murray, Invisible Girls, I've never heard of them. I have certainly heard of Echo and the Bunnymen and Giorgio Moroder and Blondie. I haven't particularly listened to those albums, but I have listened to Joy Division, David Bowie, Scary Monsters, Peter Gabriel, The Clash, you know, The Pretenders it's really it's a great list because if you dissect it and if you dissect the uh, list of music at the end and the 40 songs which i'll talk about a little bit more later you get a real sense of where you two's music comes from and that it's not just uh pop rock from the 80s or 90s you know next quote let yourself seethe bullies have run the world since we had one the world has been run by gangs elites are another word for gangs you know and we just saw Hades Town on Broadway and there's an an element of it that talks about building a wall. And yeah, I'm not going to get into politics here, but the idea even if it's metaphorical is that you are keeping out things and people that you think will take away from you. And elites is another word or another word for gangs to me says The thing that has been happening, you know, forever and certainly happening now, which is that the people in power do their utmost, not just to keep their power and money, not everyone, but I'd say in large part, uh, but also to keep the people who don't have power divided and fighting amongst each other so that they're distracted from trying to get the power from the people who have too much of it, you know, or the money from people who have too much of it. And that's certainly something that goes throughout this book. Next quote. Music for me has always been a lifeline in times of turbulence. It still is. That's enough to justify its existence. The sacred service of getting a soul from there to here is not to be underestimated. Just giving someone a reason to get out of bed in the morning counts for so much. Music as the love that drives out all fear. Music is its own reason to exist. And that. And yeah, I mean, I don't know if I need to actually comment on that, except to say that everything that he just said, I believe in. Music has probably been the one constant lifeline of my life. Uh, It has, if there are any experiences that I've had that are spiritual, even borderline religious, almost all of them have come from music in one way or another. That tingly feeling that you're, that is that you're transcending your own physicality, even your own emotions. Uh, And then, yeah, he gets into his, you know, Bono poetry music is the love that drives out all fear and all that. I don't disagree with it, you know. Next quote. But containing all these thoughts in your head leaves your brain a cocktail shaker. And when you pour out all the stuff you've poured in, it becomes something completely unique. We wanted a sound that no one had heard before. And we got it. Except for one thing. We overshot the runway and landed in a place called Saccharin. So they were always striving for a sound that they that they you know that was their own, which I think is important for any artist. Because the more the more you find yourself, the more unique you are, the better your music is. The Edge loved, uh, yes, which is so unsurprising to me now that I know it, but I never would have thought of that. And love progressive rock. Bono did not, was more into punk, but you put those two things together and you get a sense of that expansive sound that allows for some experimentation and ambience and, and all of that and still has the crunch of punk and the danceability of post-punk and all of that. You know, the idea of your head being a cocktail shaker, I it always gets me that there are uh, well-known and successful veteran even uh, artists who create a song that they somehow are wholly unaware that it sounds way too much like another song. You know, whether you want to go with George Harrison's My Sweet Lord or, uh, Sam Smith's Stay With Me, which, you know, sounded like, uh, um, was it, I Won't Back Down, or Danny California, which sounded like another, you know, Tom Petty song. Uh, you know, and yeah, they can be good songs in their own right. All of those are or the, there's a new Miley Cyrus song about flowers, which to me sounds like an older song. And and to me, that is a you maybe uh, are not aware of the history of, of where that came from. You know, it's like when Paul McCartney wrote yesterday and he was like, this has to have existed before. And he made damn sure that it didn't before he did anything with it. But the cocktail shaker makes the most sense to me because I listen to a ton. I always have. I have influences from all over the place. So when Wreck comes out, when my music comes out, it's not going to sound exactly like anything else. It'll sound a lot like a lot of things, especially if you're really listening. But it's not going to sound exactly like anything else. So when you think of U2, one thing you will absolutely say is it's hard to mistake a U2 song for any other band. Though there are bands that have come after where you could say oh they are absolutely emulating you too and that's fine you know you want that as an artist but they were very careful to mix that shit up before they spit it out so that it didn't come out sounding like something else too much uh next one and right now in zoo tv we are at the degenerate part of it and adam's journey was kind of emblematic but i had to ask Questions of myself too. What was my drug of choice? So, if you don't know, Adam Clayton uh, had—he's a you know recovering drug addict and had you know issues with drugs and alcohol through most of his life until I guess a couple decades ago now. And you know, Bono, who you know racked with guilt and self-reflection and all that stuff, didn't just look at Adam and say, "You're fucked up. Get yourself together," whatever tried to help and whatever and, and was on there on part of the journey with Adam, although Adam had to do it himself, but also at the same time was thinking, well, what part of me, what am I addicted to? You know, like a lot of people who know me know that I'm sort of addicted to doing and that doing can manifest as work or it can manifest as, you know, needing to binge a certain TV show or, you know, keep up with that or, or reading or exercising, but, I am most comfortable when I am doing something, whether it's work-related or not, and I think unplugging me from that really exposes some weaknesses and things that I need to deal with you know, more directly, and I have worked on dealing with more directly, and so Bono was asking that of himself. Was it the ambition of always challenging, of always pushing himself and his bandmates, of always adding one more thing to the pot, like not being satisfied with just being a Uh, star, but wanting to get not just uh, tangentially into activism, but as almost a full-time job, like a second full-time job. So I think it's a great question to ask. Uh, And and, uh, sort of a follow-up to that, the next quote, is it obsessional that I keep feeling our reach is far from our grasp? We hit a vein with boy at 20. We hit another one at 26 with the Joshua tree, but we discovered a whole other seam to mine at 30 with octung baby we weren't writing pop songs that everyone will remember in a hundred years like the beatles but we were creating a special feeling in our music and bringing into the open subjects that hadn't been in rock and roll and when we played live something happened in the chemistry of the band and audience that was pretty rare and this to me is one of my favorite things about any of the artists i love when you listen to the catalog of the beastie boys they never settled for just repeating what they did When you listen to Prince, of course, when you listen to David Bowie, of course, when you listen to, or, you know, the, the whole first, even 15 years, let's say, let's be generous, say 15 to 20 years of Chicago, same thing, you know, always tried to push the envelope to see where their music could go next. And when you stop doing that is when your career stops being, being vibrant and you start becoming a parody of yourself. Like what hit can we make that sounds like the other hits that we've had? you know, and it doesn't mean you don't want to do that at some point, but come at it. It's like the idea of your life is a, life is not a a circle that revolves and you end up at the same place. It's an, it's an upward spiral, hopefully upward, which is that you do circle back around to the same place, but you're on a different plane now. So if you're doing a song that you've done before, come at it from a different way, you're on a different plane. It's like with, um, you know, Beautiful Day, let's say, and and that album, they knew they were revisiting things they had done before, but from a different place, you know. And I like the idea that they didn't just settle for being the big bombastic Joshua Tree rattle and hum. you know, and prior to that, the kind of ambient post-punk, you know, with, uh, you know, emotion sensitivity they went further they went further with Octung Baby and then Ropa. to me is even more a manifestation of what they were working on in Octung Baby and then they went further in pop and then they went in a different way like in every case and he's always asking himself do we have more in us you know and the fact that they acknowledge that there's a chemistry live that cannot be uh, a, you know achieved by them individually or even as a duo when you know like he plays with the edge or whatever Uh, it's, it's interesting to me and, oh man, now that whatever it was, I was going to say just popped out of my head. So yeah. And he does say bringing into sub open subjects that hadn't been in rock and roll. Uh, I maybe, I don't know. I think they had been in other kinds of music is kind of what he was saying, but those ideas hadn't necessarily been in rock and roll. That's what I wanted to say. They're a power trio. Yeah, and then when they're produced, they might be produced with additional studio musicians. But at heart, and most of the way they play their concerts, they're a power trio. One of the biggest bands in the history of the universe, three instruments, bass, drums, guitar. It's why when Bono says somewhere that Edge is one of the most, if not the most, influential guitarist of his era, you might say, oh, come on, that can't be true. You know, I mean, his era included Prince and Steve Ray or, or whatever. But we take for granted the ambience, jaggedness, and really breadth of what The Edge has done with the guitar to be able to make sounds like that just with one instrument. Okay, next quote. They have come to see the band as a relay race. There are times when one member of the band seems to be striding forward faster than anyone else. Adam had it in the beginning. By far the more advanced. On our shared marathon in Sydney, he ran out of road, but he also started a new one. That's when he got clean. It's not a flat road, it's a hill. The endless one that he's still on. A hill that the philosopher Nietzsche used to climb. The man who wrote that for anything great to take place in your life, there has to be long obedience in the same direction. Now here's something. I It's been somewhat disproven. A lot... <laughs> Much as I love Malcolm Gladwell, a lot of what he's written has been somewhat disproven. Uh, One of those things is the 10,000-hour rule, which is that, sure, it's a good gauge, it's a good benchmark, it's a good template, but there is no rule that says you need to have a certain number of hours of actually doing something to get good at it. There are times where I have gotten good at a song and actually learn and been able to play a song just from listening to it or just from writing out the chords and not ever having played it and then get on stage and do it. And it works out. Now, part of that is from the hours and hours of experience that I had prior, but is that actually playing music? Is that actually doing? No, but what is important is what he said with Nietzsche said, long obedience in the same direction. There have been too many times in my early career where I gave up for a while, three, six months, a year, two years, and because I didn't think things had happened the way I wanted them to, not realizing that they were happening and they are happening, and that you need to just stick with it because things will continue to happen the more you do, and it's always gotten me people I've worked with who put something out and then they wait years and years to do anything else, and it doesn't have to be the same thing. you don't have to put out an album a year or every two or three years, put a single out do some performing. If you are a filmmaker, you maybe you don't want to make a whole film, make a short film, do some other activity that makes you still feel like you're in the mix and vibrant. You're, you're moving in the same direction. I think it's a really important lesson to learn. Next quote, something to know about performers. In pursuit of truth, we are capable of more untruth than most. In many ways, we are not to be trusted. We may convolute emotion appear aroused by the person next to us when they make our skin crawl. We can make you cry while laughing inside. Marlon Brando described acting as lying for a living. Deceit is not a word you associate with a great artist or a great anyone, but I confess my part in this deception is ongoing, almost as much as honesty. Deceit is a key component of being a performer, and the greatest deceit of all is authenticity. Like the rock and roll star who turns up, to the photo shoot in his oldest jumper ripped just so jumper is a sweater oh across the pond by the way uh yeah i mean it's like the. i mean they say it was was it pt barnum and i don't know if that's true i think it's apocryphal but it's uh you know the greatest uh asset in business is sincerity if you can fake that you've got it made and i think that that's very true in art too You will you know, I've read things uh, from uh, Dustin Hoffman and other actors who talk about it's very rare to have a true, unique, organic moment as an actor. You do your best to get there, but generally what you're doing is simulating from experience, however that is, and making it appear as though that's what you're going through and what you're feeling. And let's be honest, how many times in life... Life's not a musical, right? So how many times in life are you in the middle of singing something that's happening in the moment and you're experiencing it at the same time? Like maybe never, which means, you know, when you're singing or writing a song, you are somewhat removed from the reality of what it is that you're writing or singing about. So there is a level of, you know, deceit there. Uh, And David Bowie knew that well, too. Next quote. I used to say that the Irish are like Brazilians. Except for three damning differences. We hardly ever qualify for the World Cup. We avoid our own nakedness. And you might not always recognize our dancing as dancing. Honestly, I put this quote in because it is indicative of a lot of the humor that's in the book. And it's indicative of a very Irish humor. Which I happen to love. That's why I'm wearing this shirt. Uh, You know, to be able to call yourself an Egypt to be able to call your entire, you know, ethnicity of people, Irish. I forget why he mentioned Brazilians. They might've been in Brazil or, or, or whatever. I think the I think it's the passion. I think it's the fact that I, I Irish have a tremendous amount of passion. And yeah, these are all cliches and stereotypes and whatever. You could say that about Italians or, you know, so many other people, but I just, I bro I threw it in for the humor, you know, next quote, we are another kind of mirror this this one is a this one's a more than a quote it's a couple of paragraphs and I'm gonna read it anyway because uh it is an illustration of the kind of uh politics and social issues that are put in this book and how it's not just about oh I've done good but learning a lesson of what it actually means to do good. Harry Belafonte, now in his early 70s, had been fighting injustice since before we were born. With his combination of charm and admonition, he has written the playbook for every artist-activist who came after him. In the 1960s, he reminds us, he marched in step with his friend Martin Luther King Jr. in the civil rights movement, and as he bends to tie the laces of his shoes, which I would gladly have done, he tells us a story that has shaped every day of my life since. From Irish writers in theater, Wilde and Beckett, Singh and Bean, Brendan Bean, he segues into the Irish in politics, where we anticipate similar thrall with the arrival on stage of Irish royalty, the Kennedys. Not quite. Harry Belafonte rounds on Bobby Kennedy as a heel-dragger, an obstacle in the way of the charging civil rights movement. I want to object that this was not how I'd seen it, but then I remember I'm not black. I wasn't there. And anyway, Harry has the floor. He also has a speaking voice that sounds as if a fuzz box were attached to his vocal cords, lending melodrama to his simplest expression, and with this stage whisper, he transports us back in time. When Jack Kennedy appointed Bobby to Attorney General in 61, it was such a setback to our struggle that it caused one of the most heated debates we ever had at the sclc southern christian leadership conference everyone in the room was sounding off about bobby kennedy how he lacked the inspiration of his brother john the president that he was known to have warned jfk off trying to reconcile our agenda with that of the democratic party bobby was sure that if the white house got too close to the civil rights movement it would cost the democrats dear in the south where holding the highest office in the land as a catholic was already a stretch by all accounts he confessed Scratch the surface, and many who carry the banner of the Democratic Party would not exactly be anti-slavery. As the conversation grew more heated, Harry recalled how he turned to Martin Luther King, who he could tell was growing tired with the bitching about Bobby Kennedy. Martin slams his hand on the table to snap everyone out of it. Quote, does anyone here have anything positive to say about our new attorney general? No, Martin, that's what we're telling you, comes the reply. There's nothing good about this man. He's an Irish redneck, got no time for the black man's struggle. Dr. King, said Harry, had heard enough and adjourned the meeting. Gentlemen, quote, I'm releasing you into the world to find one positive thing to say about Bobby Kennedy, because that one positive thing will be the door through which our movement will have to pass. If I hadn't been sure what I'd come looking for at the feet of Harry Belafonte, suddenly it was all clear. The search for common ground starts with a search for higher ground, even with your opponents, especially with your opponents. A light bulb moment for me and a conviction that's informed my life as a campaigner ever since. The simple but profound idea that you don't have to agree on everything if the one thing you do agree on is important enough. But hold on. School isn't out. Harry Belafonte hasn't finished our lesson. Years later, he continues, when Bobby Kennedy lay dying on the kitchen floor of a Los Angeles hotel, he'd become a civil rights hero, a hero, not a laggard in our movement. And I ask myself to this day, if we got him wrong in those early days, I'll never know, but I still grieve his loss. That was Harry Belafonte talking. So did you find it? Asked Bob, raising the question we were both thinking. When the meeting reconvened, did you find that one positive thing Dr. King was looking for? quote, we did. Bobby was close to his bishop, who was in turn close to some of our clergy from the South. We found a door to move through. I get very heated about certain types of disagreements politically, socially, when it comes to race and guns and education and, you know, all that stuff, abortion access, whatever it is, there's a long list. And it can be very difficult for me to understand how to communicate with people, I, I disagree with that vehemently. And some of them are my relatives, close relatives, you know, colleagues. But the the point here is, you have to, you know, the, if we're not doing that, if we're just preaching to the choir, if we are just, you know, in our own echo chambers and and demonizing and vilifying the opposition, we will never get anywhere. And if we do, it will take a lot longer. Finding that common ground, however distasteful it might be. He was hanging out with Bono, with with Tom York. And Tom York, also very progressive, was like, I can't do what you do. I can't talk to the people you talk to because they just turned his stomach. And I understand that. And I don't know if I could. I'm not sure. But he's someone who could and he's been taken to the cleaners for it. People think, oh, you're playing both sides. But the point is, you have to be able to cross the aisle in order to make a difference. And that's something that uh, we've gotten away from in this country, you know, used to do more of. And I think it's high time that we do more of it, you know. Next quote. Uh, Killian Murphy, regarding the album Vertigo in 2004, uh, the album, regarding the song Vertigo 2004 from the album How Did Dismantle an Atomic Bomb. Bono was hanging out in the pub with Killian and... Killian asks, where has your lyricism gone? You used to write about real love and real life. You wrote about uh, characters like Victor Jara or the strikers in in Red Hill, Mining Town. Pause. Vertigo, what is that song? Who are you talking to? In Vino Veritas, you have to admire it, says Bono. The great actor cannot tell a lie, not even to the person pouring his champagne. Vertigo, I explain, is about us. I'm writing to you and me. And here's what gets me about that. Like or dislike new old stuff from anybody. I've said this before in my Illusion series. Just because something sounds profound, it has that certain warm feeling, or the way it's being declaimed, or the way it's intimate, doesn't mean that it is. Or, if it is, doesn't mean it's any more profound than the poppiest pop song, than the nanciest dance song. And something that he was saying, which I think is true, and I try to do in my own music, is that whether a song sounds profound or not has nothing to do with whether it is profound or not. And that you can, and uh, you can modify your lyrics and and your lyrical content can change and shift over time. And it doesn't mean you're, you're any, you know, less uh, exploratory or, you know, trying to do good things with the lyrics and the, and the music and the melody and all of that stuff. And also I can't stand people who are like, Oh, I like such and such, but only their early period, or only their whatever. If you like a band, you might favor a period, sure. But if you actually like a band and respect what they do, then you appreciate all of it to one degree or another. So that kind of elitism in music, it really gets me. Uh, Next quote. I was reminded as I'd found in my early studies under Jeff Sachs and in international development that this teen who spent less than a week enrolled in a university, university is a perpetual student and I learn by doing. It just resonates with me. Uh, I will always be a student. Certain things about it, being a student I enjoyed. Not so much the people or the schools, but definitely the learning. I'm constantly learning and Yes, I do agree. And I think I said this in last week's episode, doing is the best way to learn. I mean, sometimes you need to read short, but doing, I learned more about playing guitar by doing than by anything else, you know, and guitar is not my first instrument. Okay. This one, oof, this quote. Anyway, this is Paul McGinnis talking their manager who was getting ready to leave them because they were going in different directions. And this was not too long ago. So he stayed with him for a long time. Anyway, I like the star system because it because it means not everyone can shine. Look, I really don't have the energy for this. I've been playing with the idea of getting out of the music business and going back to film and TV where I started. If this is what you're thinking, then maybe this is the time for me to move on. You got to respect what Paul McGinnis did because he, he helped get you two to where they uh, are and have been. But man, I couldn't disagree more with I like the star system because it means not everyone can shine. I get I do get, I don't think that someone who is a hobbyist who treats their stuff like a hobby should, should have it as respected and well regarded as people who devote time and effort to it as though it is a job and a passion. But the difference between a star and an unknown when it comes to a certain level of music is zilch, is zero, is only the fame and the money. And I think that Bono was trying to expand uh, the reach of, you know, I guess other bands. I forget what this was about. Uh, to to have that scarcity mindset that only a few people can be stars because not everyone can shine is why only a few artists and bands and people in corporations have all the money and all of the rest of us are just trying to make a living and struggling at it. You know, it's not parody. It's it's ridiculous. Uh, I hate that quote. Shame on you for saying it. Um, but you're probably a good guy. Next quote, and we do have a, a three more left. Uh, Heartbreak is a subject I return to again and again, even when my heart isn't broken. While that has something to do with being in a marriage I never want to risk, it's also to do with the mood I'm drawn to, the duality I require from great art in general, and great music in particular, the haunted and hunted love songs of roy orbison bruce springsteen and cole porter my idea of perfection is the near obsessional version of something's gotten hold of my heart by mark almond and gene pitney as i've mentioned harry Nilsson's without you was in the back of my head when writing with or without you and maybe an echo of echo in the bunnyman's killing moon which if you put those two together you can hear with or without you uh yeah that's that chiaroscuro i was talking about at the beginning of the episode just that idea that um Putting a little dark and light, and a little light and dark, to me is always richer than just sticking to one lane. And even though I've appreciated and enjoyed certain things that have stuck to one lane, the the songs and artists who are able to be that kind of chiaroscuro, or however you want to say it, are the richest to me. <clears throat> and I think that's one of the reasons why I'm so drawn to YouTube. All right, two more quotes. Somewhere at the heart of I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For, an Edge song title, is John Bunyan's idea of the Pilgrim's Progress, or in my case, the lack of it. If I mostly find religiosity annoying, right up at the top of the annoying is the pig-headed certainty of the devout without the doubt. Not just no room for doubt in the God they follow, but no doubt in their ability to decipher the holy tracts. No doubt their version of events is the right one. What's the point of a conversation with someone who's already made up their mind? that's preaching to me. I was still trying to figure this out in 1987, how life was about constant refreshment every day, breaking away from the negative influences in nature or nurture, how we might break free from the number we're given in the DNA lotto, but only if we break free every day. Life is a constant dying and being reborn, dying and being reborn. That's that uncertainty that I talked about early on in the podcast. That's that idea that the thing you know the most, especially as you get older, is how little you know. And the the I think the wisest people know they know the least. Whatever. Zen that shit out. Last quote. Not for the first time. Uh, this was in the afterward. Uh, not for the first time. All the errors here are mine. I have a pretty good memory except for the things I've forgotten. The conversations I've written about all took place. But in the writing, I've sometimes embellished the dialogue. I've learned from Ali, his wife, that I benefit from a good edit. If we are each of us the stories that we tell ourselves, I hope in the telling of these I have done justice to other peoples. So it's, again, that humility and self-deprecation and the idea that he knows he's not passing this off uh, like some people's memoirs as 100% truth. He knows there were embellishments, but he worked his best to get to the truth. Uh, Now, jumping slightly back From that uh, afterward piece, the last few chapters got more and more philosophical and spiritual and more esoteric. There were more questions than answers. And I thought, oh, he's starting to feel less grounded and maybe ran out of things to say or ran out of steam or whatever it is. But in following through to the end, I think there were two reasons for it. One is he likes to go there. And there are times where you need to go to that place. And get more esoteric, but two is to do it at the end like that was kind of was kind of bringing home the point that he has made somewhere else that life needs to lead to a less grounded place to to a place that acknowledges that there are always more questions than answers. you know, to transcend to to death or wherever to surrender, to move on. There's the name of the book. So I feel like the end of the book was surrendering to that idea and trying to bring the reader along to surrender it, surrender to it too. Uh, one more thing, a couple more things. After the Afterword is a section and it credits the songs that were quoted. And like I, like I said, if you add those songs to the U2 songs in the book, then you've got the playlist for this book, more so even than the album uh dylan gary newman the ramones chris christopherson the sex pistols the clash the jam john lennon dexie's midnight runners sting police do they know it's christmas uh, and that one line he sang um thank god uh, them instead of you or whatever that he really didn't want to sing linda perry and christina aguilera david bowie talking heads in excess nick cave the frozen soundtrack let it go beat out you two's ordinary love uh, for an oscar win public enemy prince lou reed simon and garfunkel patty smith are just some of the artists mentioned at the end and throughout the book and then add you two to that you've got a real great playlist and joy and the and the ones from that playlist from the van joy division etc peter gabriel david bowie uh side note uh, he talked a lot about family and friends and it's clear he's a big lover and supporter and cheerleader for all of them. And in that spirit, I want to mention something that I discovered through this. I dig dig a little. He has four kids, two older daughters and two younger sons. And his uh, third kid, which is the oldest son, Elijah Hewson, fronts a band called Inhaler. Uh, they, in fact, played here in new york on saint patrick's day this year i'm sorry that we missed them um we had other plans which were also wonderful but uh it's a band worth checking out inhaler look them up uh just in in the spirit of supporting you know uh friends and family and all of that so let me do two more things one is to get to the album quickly songs of surrender i don't want to do a full review uh for so many reasons. You probably know a lot about it and have read a lot about it if you've gone this far. Uh, it's mostly acoustic or scaled down, scaled back versions of 40 of their songs that do not fully correspond to the 40 that were the song, uh, the chapter titles here, but some of them do. The conceit is that 10 of them are, you know, Larry Mullins' choices, 10 of them the Edge choices, 10 are Adams, 10 are Bono's, and that's cool. Maybe it's true, maybe it's not, but it's a cool way to do it. Um... I wouldn't listen to it all in one sitting. It's a lot to take in. It's 40 songs. I think, uh, I don't know if I would listen to any 40 song album in one sitting, but this one in particular, there's not really an arc to it. There was some intent intent with the sequence, but it really just here's shedding light on these. Some of the songs have new lyrics like beautiful day. Um, like, uh, the stuck in a moment. You can't get out of the, the tribute to Michael Hutchins who committed suicide. Some of those lyrics were changed. uh, they change, he changed the lyrics to pride because he used to sing early morning April fourth, even though MLK was killed early evening April fourth. So he changes that. He does two hearts beat as one as a dance song, as a disco song. And I, you know, we used to spin that in our DJ sets along with New Year's Day because they are dance songs. They are post punk dance songs. Uh, you know, bad. It's a great. Version I love that. Uh, Red Hill Mining Town deserves revisiting. Electrical Storm, The Fly. Stay is a song I always love. Stay Far Away, So Close. Get Out of Your Own Way is a favorite recent. And a song for someone is a favorite recent. And I mention it because it's one of their latest songs from 2017. And uh, I did an acoustic, live acoustic version with Catherine a little while back that I'm including at the very end of this podcast. First, the song I'm going to talk about next and then that one. So it's two-song, bam, feature. Uh, one of the songs, one of their Latter-day songs I love the most and one that I think more people should hear. The song I'm spotlighting this week is a song called Mine Alone. When I answered questions that were asked, I think, on Colbert, uh, I did a post recently, and one of them was, what are the song for your life? One I chose was my dad's song, Look on the Bright Side, because it's something I struggle with. <laughs> and the second one is Mine Alone. It's it's probably the one song I regret not including on Wreck Collection, uh, The Best of Rec, 2007 to 2020. But yes, as, as it'll be, uh, there'll be a link to it on Bandcamp. You can find it anywhere streaming, and I will put it at the end of this podcast in the next 30 to 60 seconds. And it's a song, the lyrics, there is a song I sing, and it's mine alone. It's that, there, that part of you... That never changes, no matter what else goes on in your life, no matter how old you get, the circumstances, uh, mental and physical health, the people you're surrounded by, the work you do. It it's yours and yours alone, and that's what mine alone is about. And I think you will hear some U2 influence in it. I've got a different, you know, U2 influence song to pick for next week, but I think you'll hear that, uh, and then followed by song for someone. Uh, yeah. So have you read this book? If yes, what were your takeaways? Tell me what you thought of it. What things stood out? If no, why did you not read it? Why won't you read it? I'd love to know. And either way, whether you read it or not, or know you two or not, what's your overall impression of Bono as both an artist and a person? I'd like to almost do a freaking poll on that to see, to get to kind of where, you know, the consensus is and to know where people come from. Because as always, my objectives here are music, conversation, and connection. Thank you for hanging with me, and I'll talk to you next week.
3: There is a song I sing, and it's mine alone, and the only song I sing to no one. A song I sing and it's mine alone, the only song I sing to you no know one There's a song I sing and you never know. The only song I sing and it's mine alone. The song I sing to make time move slow the only song that you So let's go
0: a face not spoiled by beauty. I have some scars from where I've been. You've got eyes that can see right through me. You're not afraid of anything I've seen. I was told I would